This is Point of View, a podcast exploring today's digital landscape through a critical lens. Each episode, Gil Rosen, our Chief Marketing Officer at Amdocs, will interview leading authors, entrepreneurs, and experts to help listeners view the online world from a different vantage point and demystify some of your most burning questions. We're discussing everything from fast fashion to the psychology of the internet, underscoring it all with a forward-thinking perspective. Are you ready for the future? Let's get digital. In today's world, we're all constantly being bombarded with endless information, messages, and advertisements. Most of us are forced to make hundreds of decisions each day without having the time to consider all of the options available, which is virtually impossible, not to mention irrational. This is where the practice of behavioral design comes in as a means of influencing people's everyday behaviors by analyzing their decision-making patterns. Today's guest is psychologist, writer, keynote speaker, and consultant, Liraz Margalit. Liraz has a PhD in psychology, and she specializes in behavioral design and decision-making. She's also the recipient of several distinguished awards for her research papers and studies on consumer behavior. And she recently co-founded a new startup called Topics. Gil and Liraz sit down to discuss cognitive bias, the illusion of free will, and what it means to be a psychologist of the internet. Here's their discussion. Hey, Liraz. Hi, Gil. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. How are you? I'm really well. So you, I think, described yourself as a psychologist of the internet. Can you tell people what that means? Sure. So over the past few years, I've been utilizing models from cognitive psychology, behavioral economics, and neuropsychology to better understand how customers behave in the digital world. And we know that today, different brands and organizations have the tendency to actually analyze whatever they can. And sometimes we like to call it big data, meaning different sources of data. But um, when I come to consult these company, what I see is mostly they don't know what type of question to ask. So uh, when we're talking about uh, behavioral psychologists or digital psychologists, it's about um, incorporating the right behavioral models and knowing what type of question to ask in order to deeply understand the customer's behavior online. So basically what you're saying is that by understanding what motivates people who are online, you can help companies design products better and actually make them do what these companies want them to do. Exactly. So let me give you an example. Uh, I've spent six years um, working in a company called Clicktel. I was the head of behavioral design there. Um, I left Clicktel two years ago, but actually um, it was uh, already acquired by now. But um, actually what Clicktel uh, was doing, it's actually a technology, a SaaS company. And it was about experience analytics, meaning from the moment a user, a visitor enters a website till the moment uh, the visitor leaves the website, I was able to track his behavior, 
meaning I can see how long did you scroll and what he saw before uh, purchasing a product. And I was working with brands like Walmart and Nike and the nurse space. And if you think about it, we sometimes talk about million users per month. So I was able to see the differences in behavior between returning visitor and a new visitor and uh, gender-based comparison. And actually, I was able to see what makes a customer, a certain customer purchase. In, in some point, I was even able to detect the customer's emotion by the way they were moving their mouse. And also when we're talking about tablet or a smartphone, you were able to detect a completely different behavior when you look at what customers were purchasing via their smartphone, their mobile phone, or uh, when they were sitting by their desktop. This is actually leading to, I think, what is now becoming a really hot topic because of the Netflix movie about the social networks and what, you know, what, what, the social dilemma. Is that really true? Don't we have free will? Because when I am online, I feel completely free and in control. Am I not in control? This is our biggest illusion, uh, the illusion of free will. And I think that we... Objection. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Let's start by refuting some basic myths, because over the past few years, we kept on hearing that the customer wants to be in control, that uh, if you want to sell him a product, you need to provide them with the freedom of choice. But the reality is that our brain just aren't equipped to cope with this type of freedom. And uh, we think that we are in control of our decision, but basically we hardly control 80% of our everyday decisions are done with little or no conscious thought. I mean, Gil, you cannot begin to imagine the effect of cognitive biases, of our emotions, of environmental cues to the way we make decisions. And um, in this uh, world of information that we live in, we simply have too much information. And, and from our brain perspective, it simply means too many decisions that we have to make every minute of every day. So now we are moving from this rational approach that, um, that doesn't work. I mean, we are not rational. Rational means that if you need to make a decision, Gil, you need to consider every little option. We just simply don't have the capacity to start considering every little option. So now, after a psychologist understood this, we are moving to a new approach uh, that we like to call behavioral design. And this approach is actually based, its roots actually, on the Skinner box and the behaviorism. And it basically means that if you control the menu, if you control the Skinner box, because digitally we are in a Skinner box, so you can control, easily control your user's choices. But let me, let, me, let me give you an example from my, from my life. I went through some changes and I had to consider buying certain things. And I actually found it super useful that I noticed while I was searching for things, all of a sudden the social networks I spent time in started offering me things beyond the posts that I usually look at that are relevant for the things that I'm looking at. So instead of me going to... Google, when I was scrolling my feed and in Instagram, for instance, I would be getting suggestions for furniture, 
for a car, for whatever. And it, I really liked it. It was passive, right? Instead of me. And so I think that if the social network knows that I have a need, that I, I'm, I'm actually living an event, it figured out my event, and then it started to offer me things in that context. Now, to take that and say they know me is like to see somebody in a highway that's scratching their head that might need a shampoo on the other side of the road uh, while you're in the car and they're in the car and saying, I know this guy because the, you saw them scratch their head. Yes, you know they might need a shampoo, but it doesn't mean that you know them. <laughs> so let me tell you this, Gil. What you just described is just the tip of the iceberg. And um, okay. Let's, let's get to the bottom of the iceberg then. <laughs> there is tons of information that those social networks know about you, but they don't reveal it because they don't uh, want to actually right now make too much of a buzz. But I know for a fact, I will give you an example. They can know if you in 11 uh, p.m. at night, if you are looking at images of your ex and they know who is your ex because you can change status on Facebook. And if you look at your ex, you must have been feel sad about it. So they know how to put you in a certain mood. And if you are in a certain mood, and they know that if you have a certain personality traits, let's say that you change your picture a lot on Facebook, and you have more than six groups, and you use words like wow and amazing, so you are uh, an extrovert or you are I in extroversion. And if that is so, so the right thing for me to offer you in uh, at 11 a.m. is to join a certain group or to buy a certain product. And what's in wrong with that? What's wrong with that yeah. is that... The, the supermarket, it's like a micro supermarket that instead of me going to the supermarket at 11 p.m., like, uh, you know, uh, the way you would look at 11 p.m. going to the supermarket, you just, uh, the supermarket comes to you. Cool. Not really, because no. uh, we feel that this is the world. This is the default. The default has so much power because what we can feel in our senses is actually felt that this is uh, the whole world. But this is not because the news that we see, the friends that we hear from, the jobs that we hear about, even the restaurant, not in COVID time, but even the restaurant, we consider our potential romantic partners on, on Tinder, all of them actually filtered through a widespread apps, each of which actually um, comes with a menu of options that gives the menu, the designer, enormous power. I mean, you don't know why you see a certain restaurant or why you see only this potential partner on Tinder. And there is an algorithm behind it that actually looks at you and knows you and they have a digital footprint on each user and then actually they use um, this information from different sources. For example, Waze know where you're working and eBay and Amazon know what you like to buy and Facebook knows your personality traits. And if you think about it, there is an avatar on Gil that knows you better than your moms know you. So, so do you think it's, uh, and now we're moving to the ethics of it. How do you manage this? I mean, it, it just, do people just have to be good people or will, will this ever be in control? How do you see this being played out? 
So of course, this is an ethical question, but it is even more complicated than we think, meaning that, okay, let's put aside all the negative effects just for one uh, second. Let's consider that we, uh, what we call design for good, meaning that I can uh, convince you or what we like to call adherence today or uh, compliance. I can convince you to, uh, to work out more and to, to eat more healthy food and maybe to, uh, to get vaccinated. And I can do all this using behavioral design, but in other words, using psychological manipulation. Is it a good thing? So now uh, when we're talking about all the positive implication, so now can we say that I can use it and I can manipulate you without your awareness? I'm not sure. I mean, the, the question is, can we use it at all? Uh, we can actually convince uh, people to save more for their pension and to drive more safely and to recycle. But can we have, do we have the right to actually use this uh, manipulation on people, even if it is for their best interest? And I'm not sure that we can. But as you said, all the companies in Silicon Valley, they do it today. They have actually a course of uh, behavioral design of the psychology of persuasion and how to use psychology in order to sell more. And they even have a company that uh, is called something, a startup that is called something with dopamine because the dopamine is another transmitter that actually uh, drives us to, uh, this is the pleasure dopamine, simply said, and uh, it drives us to actually spend more time on Facebook and to become addicted to WhatsApp and to all the other apps. So I think it's not ethical, but I'm not sure that even the behavior, the design for good is ethical, but we do it anyway. Let's move to, on to a topic that I think is also something that you uh, kind of uh, uh, research and look into, which is this whole kind of psychology uh, around FOMO, right? Uh, the fear of missing out. Can, can you talk about the power of it? And then I'm going to offer you a, maybe a counter argument. Actually, now we have a new fear. So, of course, the FOMO is the fear of missing out. And um, it's not only on Facebook. Let me give you a personal example. I have three kids. And they all have their uh, school uh, WhatsApp group. This is extremely annoying. <laughs> and uh, I mean, those mothers in the WhatsApp group, they can grab and talk for hours. And I hate this. And I, I, I even, I can't bring myself to be part of this discussion because it's so boring. And sometimes I, I sit down to write an article and then I have those, all those notifications from WhatsApp. And if I was rational, I would uh, turn it off. But I can't because of the fear of missing something important that uh, relates to my kids. So we cannot deny the fear of missing out. And actually today, when we're talking about uh, different startups, different technologies, the main trigger in technology is not its functional purpose. It is emotional purpose. And I can tell you that uh, we conducted a research on Waze users. And uh, we were able to find that um, it was at least 
of users, whenever they enter the car, they automatically open up ways. And sometimes it was on Saturday and sometimes they knew exactly how to navigate to the place uh, they were aiming to go, but they still open up ways because the feeling control. So all, all this feeling, the fear of missing out, the need to be in control, the fear of loneliness that makes us go on Facebook, all those uh, addictive apps, they uh, trigger our feelings. And if Facebook was supposed to be an app where we connect with our friends, now it's an app to make sure we are not going to miss out on uh, what's going on in the world. So let me, uh, so let me give you kind of another angle to it. And, and of course, uh, th- there is, you know, this is the world we're living and this is how I get informed. And if I want to know what's happening with my friends, I go on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, you know, WhatsApp to get informed. And that's just the way that is possible today. But let's talk about, for instance, my mother XX years ago uh, (laughs) when I was a teenager going out. And let's say I didn't um, return home at 3 a.m. And all of a sudden she wakes up. And you're a mother, so you would know that feeling. It's like, ah, right? And then she wouldn't be able to communicate with me because when I was a teenager, there was no phones. And I just said, I'm coming back. And then she would have all these scenarios run in her head of, of me, you know, running off, you know, driving like crazy. And I'm probably hot. And does she need to call the hospital and blah, 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 blah. And I'm probably like, I just fell asleep on my friend's sofa. And today, and I wake up at 3 a.m. Sorry. Yeah, there are many stories uh, worse, but never mind. Uh, Not for this podcast. And then I wake up at 3 a.m. and uh, my son is not home. So I look at his Instagram stories and I see that he's having a good time. And maybe I see his friend putting up a story that he's falling, you know, fell asleep on a sofa. So I'm so I'm good. And I have no fear of missing out. I'm just being informed. And the same way of my friends going out, I'm. I, I don't classify it as a fear. I classify it as a need to be informed. The only thing that I do admit in this like new world is that the fire hose of information is so big that sometimes there are many events that you would in the past maybe have not even thought about that you want to know what happened. But, but actually in the past, you would have imagined and you would have been stressed out. I don't think that the internet invented like jealousy. It didn't invent being an outcast. All these things existed, but now either I can see it. Okay. So instead of imagining it, I can confirm it. But also if I think about young children who are very efficient or proficient in in social networks, they also know a lot of it is fake because they fake it themselves. So if they see this like, ah, we're having fun, cheers, blah, blah, blah. They know that in the background there's nothing and it's just whatever. It's a makeup party. So I wonder if we're like... Us, and I, you know, I would loosely put us in the same category of the same generation, uh, maybe look at these things slightly more like dramatically than we should, because young people are like, you know, they're like, hey, it's okay. They went out and it's not, there's no FOMO. It's, it's, it's just now they're experiencing their version of, of envy and fear and everything that I experienced slightly different because there's technology and it's natural. It's not a big deal. They keep on hearing this claim. And I have to tell you that now I totally disagree. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. (laughs) Let's start with some findings. 
we know that uh, there is a strong, meaningful correlation between time spent on Instagram and Facebook and anxiety and depression, especially for teenage girls. And also we know that suicide levels uh, rose in the past few years and we can see it from the inventing of those social media. But now you gave a nice example. You said, okay, so even if a teenager look at the picture and he sees some uh, filtered young girl, he knows that it is filtered, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because we have to understand that we have two different systems operating in our mind, system one and system two. System one is the emotional system. And uh, it is based on our emotion. It is quick to make decisions and judgment. And basically, our emotional system is responsible for more than 80% of our decision because we don't like to work harder than we have to. And when we use our rational system, system two, our cognitive system, it requires lots of cognitive resources. So we don't like to use it a lot. And when you say, we know that, we don't use this knowing. We mostly use our feeling. And the thing about those uh, social media is social comparison, especially for the younger generation, because they keep comparing themselves to the other people. And when you live and when you spend your time online, and when I talk to those teenagers and I see that when they come up in the morning, they decide how their day is going to look by the number of stories that are going to upload. And they sometimes even wear uh, the, the right uh, color of, uh, of clothes in order to have a nice picture. And we know that every picture before it is uploaded, especially for those teenage girls, it is filtered and they take at least eight, in average, eight photos before they use one successful photo. So it is all about the visual and how do I look and how many likes did I get. And sometimes those likes has um, is the worst effect, meaning that they can change the day. If I didn't get enough likes, it means I'm no good. And they actually think and associate those likes with the feeling of love. And when I ask people, okay, you have a birthday, what do you prefer? Do you prefer to congratulate to me, call you or maybe come to you and uh, congratulate you? Or would you like me uh, to write it online? Do you know what they tell me? It was 80% of the, of the teenage girls. Do you, want, do you know what they, uh, what they answer were? I'm guessing it's the... Story is the story, yeah. They, they because if I didn't congratulate them to their birthday online, it doesn't count. And if you think about it, this way of life is is impossible. I didn't experience it as a young girl, but I see my daughter, and I see that uh, it is all about how many likes on TikTok and on Instagram and uh, how many followers. And I think we can see right now the negative implication and uh, we keep on seeing this on the, in the future. But, but, but Liraz, I want to, you know, I really, you know, I'm trying to be an optimist and I, and I also want to kind of reflect also on, on how things work. So I do agree that technology has advanced so fast in such a little time that many things that needed to catch up 
haven't caught up. And I, I tell you what I mean more specifically. So my educational base, I would say 90% of it is the same as my children's educational base. Okay, because schools haven't really changed. The topics are the same topics. Mathematics is mathematics and literature is literature. And so I think probably the most important, and I, I found this across many conversations I've had with people, that I think that if we don't change the foundation of today's generation, the, the educational foundation, and I'm not talking about the education of don't do this, but what is the meaning of, I think that's probably where the solution starts. It's about really changing the education system. Second, I think that, and again, I go back to my own childhood. Yes, there was that outcast that in today's term had zero likes, that was depressed, that was lonely, and he didn't even have a social network to go and have spent time on. He was basically a super lonely child maybe became a programmer that then developed uh, Facebook or not, I'm not talking about a specific person or works at Facebook. And then, and then you know, now is actually, you know, in charge of the like button. But, but no, I'm, I'm just saying that these things always existed. You always had the popular people, the, the middle class and, and you know, the, the outcasts. And, and now the only thing that changed it is the ability to actually see things maybe see things, see desires, see stories that you never saw before. But the actual, I, I wonder if there's, I don't think there are more popular people or more less popular people. It's just now through technology, people are more transparent about, let's call it their situation. But otherwise, I think the children of today are more educated, more globally aware, understand concepts like sustainability and, 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 and friendship and communication. And I think of myself as a child, I actually happened to travel a lot when I was growing up. So I was supposed to be a global, like globally aware child, but I was so local because whenever I was somewhere, that's the only place I knew. And today children know people from all over the world because they play uh, games with them, because they, they see them on social networks. So it balances itself. I mean, of course there's bad things. Uh, there were bad things before. It's not like a utopia, oh, it used to be so good. I'm just wondering what is the one thing that you think will make a difference going forward in order for, for all this not to be so um, pessimistic? So, you know, I myself, I think about this question a lot and I get this question a lot. And, um, I, I, and I, I have to tell you that I agree. I think that our, the younger generation is well-educated on the one hand. On the other hand, I sometimes refer to him, uh, it as the copy-paste generation because if there is one thing we see is that the attention level actually decreases. So they need to get everything right here, right now. And the principle of working hard is hardly ever existed anymore. But after saying that, I think that as parents, if we are going to be aware uh, of, uh, of the negative implication and we, we will be able to teach our children how to balance, I mean, we have work-life balance, so we need to have a digital, physical life balance. 
this is one thing. And um, I think that if we're talking about skill set of the younger generation, I think that the most uh, requested or popular skill set is to be able uh, to, to change yourself really fast and to be able to uh, adapt to your environment and to learn new things. And I think, of course, yeah, technology actually help us with that. So if we are able to, uh, to take advantage or to uh, leverage technology in order to teach us how to adapt to the new environment, and uh, on the other end, to make sure we don't spend too much time on all those social uh, network, I think that um, it is a bright future for us. You know, I just, uh, before I, I ask you maybe the closing question, I just want to reflect. I went to an American school in Japan in high school. And if I uh, try to think about how we all looked like, I think that was uh, the meaning of copy-paste. We all had the same haircut. We wore the same jeans. We all had uh, the whatever sneakers. And I think copy-pasting has been how people have behaved. But now it's global. So you see something like a dance on TikTok, everybody's doing the dance. It's... But it's, it's human nature. I mean, for me, it was just the high school and I just did it in front of another 300 people or we, we were all in this copy-paste mode. And if you look back at like, uh, you know, pop videos in the 80s or, 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 or shows from the 80s, you're like, wow, all these haircuts, they all look the same and they're funny and they're all copied each other and they felt good because they looked like each other, but it's the same as TikTok. It's not, the, anyway, let's move no, no, on. You're right, but, but I, I, I was reflecting on their searching skills on what I like to call the Google effect, meaning that we were able to find that when you read from hard copy, the information processing is deeper and is better and you were able to better perform in the task. So when I talk about copy-paste generation, I mean that they take information, they paste it another way, and they don't really process the information. But I want to close with a, with a question of uh, the future, and I call it the exponential question. You know, technology is moving super fast, um, and behavior in psychology probably isn't because we're limited human beings as, you know, our capabilities are actually limited by the power of our brain and and how we've been wired over millions of years. And if you take everything that you said, because technology will advance quantum computing and AI and machine learning and whatever, and let's imagine the social network of 2050. Isn't it like, first of all, I'm not looking at a screen, probably. It's somehow embedded in my head. I mean, how far do you think this thing will go? And are we doomed as far as you're concerned? Or... Is there like an amazing future ahead of us? How do you, how do you play? How, how does this thing play out? So um, <laughs> there is an experiment they like to do with my students. And I, I like to ask them, okay, let's say that you have a chip in your brain. And this chip can make all the decisions for you, but it will make it better than you because it has all this information and he knows you and he can calculate all uh, those. He has a calculation power, so he can calculate all the, the information in your personality traits and your health condition. Would you use it to make the decision for you? And until today, there is not even one person that says that he's going to use this chip. Because I think um, there is something 
about, about us human that likes to make our own decision, even if we are going to fail. And I think that in the COVID time, I think that if there is one thing that makes me feel good is to see that even though we were um, moving all our interaction to the Zoom, it wasn't the same. And people still need the face-to-face interaction. And all the depression level that we see, sometimes it is because we only need this small interaction. Even those annoying interaction in the supermarket, waiting in the line, we need it. As you said, our brain did not develop as fast as our technology. And our brain still needs to sense the other people, to smell the other people, to feel the other people. And, um, and I think that even in uh, 2050, I think that, uh, of course, technology is going to be more developed than today. But um, I think we will stay basically the same. So that's a, that's a great uh, note to end with. The note of at least hoping that technology will be as humane uh, as possible and uh, ethical and without the impossible task, we'll finish. So uh, thank you, Liraz. It's been fascinating. Thank you, Gil. fascinating to think about all the ways behavioral design is being used to analyze the way we think and make decisions to ultimately influence our actions. Considering most of the companies in Silicon Valley are using this technique to persuade and influence consumers, as Liraz mentioned, it's easy to feel like we're living in some sort of Big Brother or Matrix-inspired reality where free will is an illusion. While there are certainly ethical concerns surrounding behavioral design, Lee Ross also made some excellent points about the need for organizations and government agencies to persuade people to live healthier lifestyles, get vaccinated, or wear seatbelts. What's more, we know that humans would typically rather be presented with fewer choices than more. So perhaps behavioral design is doing us all of a favor after all. Lee Ross, thank you for taking the time to share your point of view. Thanks for listening to Point of View, a podcast by Amdocs. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with your network, subscribe, and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for our next episode. We'll see you next time.